Yeah. Well, I can I can, I can be like this well, too. <laughs> yeah, you don't need to do that. Um, do like the do like the um, the pop star thing and like put my face on. <laughs> just put as much of your just saliva be, as possible onto like the mic, licking it the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. I want to get coronavirus the next time I touch these mics. <laughs> You can do what that one guy in the NBA did. He literally went out of his way to touch all the reporters' microphones, and then two days later tested positive for coronavirus. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Wait, what? He was... Yeah. Yeah, he, and then he had to apologize. Like, <laughs> was that he the... was joking because he was, like, m- mocking everybody being so worried about coronavirus, and he, like, yeah, was very unsanitary with people's uh, microphones on purpose, and then tested positive couple days later nice that's real classy mm-hmm. yeah was that the jazz the utah jazz player i think so yeah the yeah there's two players on utah jazz who have it but the guy yeah the first guy uh was touching all the microphones and then the second guy is mad at the first guy because the second guy hangs out with the first guy all the time uh but amazingly like somehow the entire jazz team got tests, despite the fact that nobody, like, it seems impossible to get tests. Um, and people are saying, oh, the jazz owners are, like, in with the medical industry. So that's how they got tests. And it's like, man, that's, if that's true, that's really sad. And even if it's not true, the fact that we can point to that and suggest it's true is also sad. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, pro sports leagues are owned and run by billionaires, so I'm sure... They have access to lots of things that we don't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Indeed. I was born at Saturday Bridge. I grew up in the Hello, and welcome to Critical Support, your source for conditional, heavily caveated, completely correct takes on basically anything. This is the quarantine edition. We are fully socially distanced. We are more, at least six feet away from each other completely <laughs> at all times. Uh, Including one member who is coming to us over the phone. Yes, hi. I am coming to you live from uh, the university district uh, because, holy crap, I am, uh, there's just, it's scary out there, guys. It's very scary. With a new technology called uh, Critical Support Audio Link <laughs> via our vast network of satellites. Uh, that's how we can make this happen, folks. Right. So despite the uh, rapid spread of disease and pestilence, we uh, we know you need those correct takes, those those right perspectives. So um, we are still here to provide you with those in these uh, dark and trying times. Indeed. Yeah. So I'm Jacob. I'm Teresa. Oh, uh, I'm Preston. And I'm Gabe. And if you want to submit a topic for us to consider uh, coronavirus-related or not, uh, but preferably coronavirus-related, because that's all anyone wants to talk about right now, uh, you can email us at uh, criticalsupodcast at gmail.com. The email address will actually be in the notes for this one. So does someone have a topic they want to start with? I'll start this time. Okay. I've never started before, so this is, a, this is a special moment for me. Okay, great. Go ahead. Okay, so this is a topic that... Uh, they discussed on Democracy Now!, and it is not coronavirus-related. Wow. I know, right? I know. I'm sorry, folks. Uh, just, just close the podcast now and maybe skip ahead 30 minutes. Uh, okay, this one is the Supreme Court. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, man. So, basically, of course, there's the... 
you know, many, many liberal folks, you know, love the Supreme Court and love, uh, you know, notorious RBG, <laughs> RBG yeah. right? And, uh, you know, they see the Supreme Court as, you know, basically delivering abortion access and uh, giving some of the fundamental rights that we have as a country. But this, this guy on Democracy Now! basically wrote this book about how if you actually look at history, the vast majority of times the Supreme Court has sided against working people, against minorities, against women. And it, it wasn't like there was a shift in the 60s. And ever since then, the Supreme Court has been good. It's like there was just like a brief there's been a few brief periods of time when the Supreme Court did some good stuff. But mostly it just sides with big business or the establishment or just just whoever's in power, really. So, you know, there's the case to be made that the Supreme Court is absolutely political. And I think, you know, it's pretty clear even how, you know, the media just talks about, oh, yeah, the liberal and the conservative justices on the Supreme Court. So so it begs the question, should a Supreme Court even exist? And even in like a, a more ideal society or state, should a Supreme Court exist? Even if we openly acknowledge the political nature of it and have, let's say, elected Supreme Court judges like uh, some states you know, do in the U.S. They elect their state Supreme Court judges. Is it is it a good thing to have a body that's above the the legislature, above the people to make the decisions on those things? I guess you could say it's good to have someone to interpret the laws and settle disputes on a high level, but but I just want to hear uh, what what other people think about that. Is it good? Is a Supreme Court should it exist? Right. Do we support it? So the main problem with the Supreme Court, as I can see it, is it's it's undemocratic because it's not elected. It's just sort of appointed at various times, and they serve life sentences, and so it, it makes it inherently a very conservative institution. And so if you're going to have a judicial system, you have to, like, it's 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 kind of like um, that one uh, medieval philosopher, I can't remember the dude's name, who had that proof for the existence of God that was like, if there are things, there must be a highest thing. And that thing is God. Therefore, so it's like you you have to have a high, if you have a judicial system, if you have a system of courts, there has to be a highest court. And that is the Supreme Court. And so if it was elected specifically, you know, if, 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 if there were like term, if they were on term, if there were term limits, if we had a, a judicial system that did not sort of promote you know, purely from extremely punitive uh, institutions like, you know, district attorneys and that sort of thing, uh, the whole thing would be fine. We don't. Yes, I, I, I don't see any reason to have critical support for the Supreme Court any more than we would have critical support for any state institution that could be constructed completely differently than it is now. Yeah, that just about says it. <laughs> um, yeah, I listened to that segment too. It was really interesting. I guess the period, the main turn was like in the 70s after I think, right, after the Warren Court. And since then, it's just absolutely consistently has sided with big business interests and against, like, ordinary people. And, yeah, obviously the Supreme Court as an institution today is really pretty much a reactionary political force. Um, I would definitely absolutely not extend critical support to the currently existing Supreme Court. But I think Jacob's points are good. Uh, yeah, no, I think it's definitely, I think especially with the appointment of uh, Brett Kavanaugh, I think it's become really clear to a lot of the left. I think through the 60s and the 70s, it was very easy to think that the court was some sort of liberal bastion and we should fight to have liberals on the Supreme Court and we can just reinterpret the law that way and we can fight for civil rights that way. 
Um, but it's very hard to do that in the context of a law that was not designed to do that, a body that was not designed to do that. I mean, that's the whole argument on why the capitalist state is not uh, designed to advance the interests of working people. That's just true. And, you know, at times the stick gets bent because of the pressures of working people. You know, you can see throughout mid-century, the golden age of capitalism, in order to retain legitimacy, all of these bodies start doing somewhat more progressive things uh, because they have to in order to maintain labor peace uh, and to maintain social peace. Um, they somewhat fail at doing that, but then, you know, then Reagan shows up and then everything kind of whips back into place for, uh, for the capitalist class. So, yeah, I think every time you've seen the court do anything progressive, it's because outside forces were pushing them to do that and they had to do it to maintain legitimacy for the court. Like, even the Obamacare decision, you can see very clearly, like, had they struck that down, the court would have taken a huge blow. So the chief justice, who is normally conservative, voted to keep the law because otherwise, you know, uh, the court and the government would have seen been seen as an illegitimate body. So, but at the same time, they can't help but become illegitimate, as you saw through, you know, uh, the Gorsuch and the uh, Kavanaugh appointments, um, because because it's still sucked down into that into that political realm. So I think uh, the sooner we can dispel myths around the Supreme Court, the better. Um, the sooner we can focus more on building working class movements instead of you know legalistic, moralistic arguments. Um, I think the better. And uh, it just happens to be convenient that the ruling class is interested in that as well. So, uh, yeah, no critical support for the uh, Supreme Court. Yeah. Oh, good. Gabe, that, yeah, that's an easy one. It was kind of boring, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, the idea that it's an objective, you know, apolitical body is a total farce. And basically it, it serves to keep uh, working people out of struggle by saying, no, 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 just just stay home and send us money so we can hire lawyers you know, so we can fight these things in court. Don't don't worry about getting involved yourself because you can't do anything. We have to do it in court, which is a total farce because the courts aren't objective at all. They're completely political. And it's, it's just so funny to hear. If you ever just like listen to NPR, when they talk about courts, they'll like openly talk about liberal and conservative judges and then also talk about like how it's an objective body and how it's like <laughs> how it's how it's supposed to be like above politics and how it's important to make sure that it's above politics. And they, they just haven't been able to like settle that contradiction. So they just try not to bring those two things up at the same time. <laughs> um, it's it's really funny. Uh, it's it's kind of sad. It's really. Yeah. Liberals and their fixation on the Supreme Court. I, I would be in favor of abolishing the Supreme Court purely so they would shut up about it <laughs> because they, they, they need to be disabused of that idea. I mean, it's like, right. It, it's like so idiotic. Even right now we're hearing like, no, we have to, you know, we have to fight for, um, you know, even if Biden's the nominee, we all have to vote for them. So vote, uh, you know, we all have to vote for him just so we get liberals on the Supreme Court. And it's like this guy fought tooth and nail for Clarence Thomas to be on the Supreme right. Court. Yeah. Like the, the, the idea that this is any kind of a meaningful battle is 
complete bullshit. And it's like there there was a time when the Supreme Court, I mean, I would say in general, the Supreme Court represents one of the more far-sighted sections of the ruling class. It is it is it is a body appointed for life in order to manage capital sort of above every other body that is appointed to manage capital. And there was a point where they made a number of decisions that were objectively progressive because that was what capital needed in order to stabilize itself. You know, the the fact that they've taken a hard turn to the right symbolizes where capital thinks the center of gravity is and yeah that's well, the situation conservatives are like very um they, they i think they actually have a very good understanding of what the supreme court is and how it works because they're really aggressive about trying to get far far right people into you know judge positions at all levels of the courts right mm-hmm. yeah they're very aggressive about that and they're they're not trying to pretend that like like they they have their people go into their hearings and just act like you know neutral judges, but you know they know from all the records and everything that these people aren't. But then liberals are still trying to pretend that this is a neutral institution, and they're trying to like so they think they can compromise and and put forward a compromise moderate judge on the court, which doesn't work, and the Republicans don't let them do that anyways. Yeah, you know it's it's. Uh, it's it's kind of sad how people still have faith in this when like the conservatives openly don't have faith in this. Republicans are openly just trying to pack it with the most right wing vile people, and liberals won't pack it with real left progressives. They're trying to like find ways to get acceptable moderates in there because it's important to have a an objective, fair, moderate court. Because they're never willing to go to war with the right. Yeah. Yep. Well, because yeah, they fundamentally don't think. They, they fundamentally don't disagree with, uh, you know, the. I mean, they disagree on how to manage capital, obviously, but they don't disagree with the fact that capital has infinite rights. You know, um, I once, speaking of liberals who need to be disabused, I once was talking with a person who used uh, who used this political formulation, which was, uh, "If RBG dies, I'm ready to burn this shit down," which was like. Just the peakest liberal thing I could imagine. Uh, so, uh, yeah, that this is this is life right now. <laughs> that is some uh, deeply embedded contradictions right there. Anyway, so it sounds like we're all in agreement. Uh, no critical support for the Supreme Court. Correct. Indeed. Great. I'm not sure where. I, I guess stop ever talking about it. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure who needs to be adjusting their views. Who's listening to our podcast? But NPR, uh, if you're listening, please stop talking about it. <laughs> also, NPR stands for Nice Polite Republicans. Okay, so um, unless someone else has something uh, burning, I, I have one that I think will go very nicely with our prior topic, mm-hmm. um, and that is uh, critical support for white people with dreads. Ugh. Brutal. <laughs> oh man, are we're, we're gonna do this? Are we gonna do really? We're gonna do this? Well, it doesn't have to take very long, uh, but yes, I think we should do this. Does anyone I have an objection? Add. No objection. Okay, I think dreads look cool on pretty much everybody, um, and yeah, the people who make fun of white people with dreads are far and away mostly reactionaries who think it's like stupid hippies, granola people, whatever. If you want to have dreads, it's fine. I don't see anything wrong with it. Yeah, that's my position. Oh, shit. You're ready to stir the pot. Let's do it. (laughs) Always. So, I mean, obviously, I don't think anyone is against 
you know, white people with dreads on the account of like crunchiness or granolaness or dirtiness. Like, I, at least I think it. You mean like aside from all the vicious reactionaries who that is their entire case against white people with dreads? Oh, I mean, okay, yeah. I mean, I, I don't mean the progressive case against white people with dreads includes all that. You know, like, that's whatever. That's just, you know, you, that's you. You have to deal with that. That's fine. I think what's at issue or the thing that needs to be discussed is more or less the concepts of cultural appropriation, right? And to what extent is is that a factor uh, when it comes into, into this? So I think when we think about cultural appropriation, I think it's very common to think to think of it in, in capitalist terms, right? Like almost like, oh, this piece of art was inspired by these pieces of art and uh, you know, this white person was compensated for it, these people of color were not, we need to figure out a way to get the people of color the money. And it's like, well, that's still, I mean, that's sort of, it, it's very difficult to root out cultural appropriation under capitalism, right? And because, you know, there's no ethical consumption under capitalism, and, uh, you know, we're, we're not prudonists of, you know, trying to figure out how to get the money to all the different owners of a thing. You know, uh, that's a utopian idea. Um, and it doesn't really make sense. That's not how culture is generated either. But at the same time, like, does that mean, like, so, you know, obviously we can't abolish cultural appropriation under capitalism, but does that mean we should still, quote, partake in it if we consider this partaking in it under capitalism, right? I mean, there is a there is a power dynamic between, you know, people who have historically worn dreads, or, you know, culturally historically worn dreads, and people who would like to adopt that because they think it looks good, and, you know, that's, I, that's a sort of an aesthetic judgment, but, you know, is that a culturally appropriate thing to do under capitalism, right? We know under, you know, we know after capitalism, you know, in a more equitable society without that power dynamic, that becomes less of an issue. Um, but is it appropriate to do now? I don't know. Mm, yeah, I don't know if I really agree that white people with dreads amounts to cultural appropriation. I think that seems a little bit of a stretch to me. I think that kind of what it comes down to is like if you have the texture of hair that can get dreadlocked if you do certain things or specifically don't do certain things to it, then I think, you know, if that's what you want to do, that's fine. Um, I don't really have a substantive argument against white people with dreads, but I, I, I would say that anybody with dreads, it, it really depends on how it manifests and how much they're caring for it. Because it's like, there are some dreads that are just essentially like practically one huge dread and it's just totally totally matted and, it, and basically indicates that they haven't been doing anything to care for it and it doesn't, I don't think that looks good at all. But you know, if it's like, if that's your thing, I think it's fine. And then there are certainly some people whose hair texture just does not do that. I mean, maybe they, you could like damage, like permit or do something so that you would be able to have dreads. But I know that 
I have a hair texture that could get dreaded if I don't um, trim my hair enough or like use conditioner enough. It starts to it starts to dread in certain places, but I'm not trying to get dreadlocks. So I mean, like on the one hand, I'm I'm personally of the belief that I don't think it really I don't I just don't think it really matters what people are wearing or doing with their hair, and that it, it sh it's not really a valuable use of time to be trying to like think about the best and most appropriate ways to do that and, and and try to like find the perfect, you know, culturally appropriate one for each person. But on the other hand, I mean, I just see that there's like, there's a lot of, you know, very vocal people of color who say, don't do that. I think that's offensive and inappropriate. And, you know, I, I guess I just kind of respect that. And I think it's like not really something to fight that it's, it's not really worth it to fight that and if you want to like to me I, I would rather invite those people in to activism who are you know maybe offended by white people with dreads because they feel like it, their culture is being appropriated then I'd rather invite them in than protect people who defend their right to have dreads you know I think it's 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 a sticky issue but I would say no critical support, you know, with the exception of I think there's like a lot of like street people, homeless people who have dreads. And, I, you know, it's like I think it's it's a waste of time to try to like critique homeless people for what their hair and clothes look like, because that's just way too complicated and, you know, degrading to do that. But for like a well to do person who obviously has the time and ability to choose their hairstyle. And obviously, if you have the time and ability, as a white person with hair that doesn't naturally dread, you're, you're choosing to do dreads. So, you know, I think to be welcoming and inviting to many people of color who would like to get involved in activism, but they're like very turned off and put off by white people with dreads, I think we should discourage white people from wearing dreads, you know, frankly. Well, if you had some evidence that that was a widely held feeling among working class people of color, I think there you might have a point. But honestly, the most vociferous white people with dreads is cultural appropriation stuff I've heard is from other white people. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know of any like I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sure there are prominent people of color who have objected to white people with dreads. I but that doesn't seem to be where the majority of the objection comes comes from. And just to depress, well, I, I would disagree with that. But I think we're both speaking anecdotally. We are, yeah. Um, and just with Preston's point, I I don't think I think cultural appropriation is a massively overused uh, phenomenon, and it is most legitimate when it does have material consequences. When it is like. You know, you have opened a restaurant that uses recipes from a culture that is not yours, that you basically, you know, stole without remuneration from someone else. And that that, that sort of thing where it has had real material consequences when it's like uh, when when the objection to wearing dreads is, well, when a white person wears dreads, it is somehow disrespectful to black people because the white person with dreads will not be criminalized in the way that the black person with dreads will. It, it's just, it gets this sort of twisted up cultural, like that is presuming no possibility of actual solidarity. Like if your solidarity is limited to whether or not you have dreads, that's just sort of ridiculous. And also, I mean, just on a basic historical fact, it's not actually just you know, dread, dreads are not limited to people uh, of African descent. Dreads are found in cultures all over the world. In in modern day American society, yes, it does have a specific connotation, a specific issue with Rastafarianism. Yeah. Um, which is another point that it's like Rastafarianism is a religion. 
And so if you are of that religion, it is not... I, I, it's it, multiracial. It, yeah, and it makes no sense to try to um, punish. Like, it, it is a predominant... It's, it's from Jamaica, right? Yeah. Yeah, and so it's like, obviously, it's, it's, it's predominantly black people from Jamaica who are Rastafarian, but not exclusively. So yeah, I, I just don't think it, it really follows that the objections make sense. Yeah, I agree. And just to sort of add another... Because I am not familiar with the argument that it's offensive from people of color. Oh, this is offensive cultural appropriation, but that's, again, just anecdotal, and I believe you that it's out there. But to me, that's, I mean, where do you draw the line on that? Is it, like, people that have hair that can grow into an afro that aren't of, uh, you know, of some sort of African descent? Is that also cultural appropriation if they let their hair grow out? I mean, it just seems... It just seems a little bit, I don't know. It just seems, it still seems to me like a stretch. It's like, okay, it's, there's a Rachel Dolezal, you know, and like perming her hair and, and like pretending she's, she's black so that she can have like credibility in the African-American community uh, in whatever it was, Spokane or whatever. That's one thing. That's obvious (laughs) cultural appropriation that's, that is offensive. But like. That's just weird mostly. It's just yeah. deeply, deeply strange. But I, I just don't see how it's... I can't, I'm having a hard time relating to how if somebody's hair can ha- can get dreads, uh, how that amounts to cultural appropriation. Also, all the things that Jacob said about Rastafarianism. I, I think, to a very large extent, the white people I know with dreads who, are, um, who, who aren't street people, who aren't houseless folks... They're people who, you know, just are are very culturally unaware, who don't pay attention, who aren't engaged politically or or socially to to a large degree. Yeah, that's true. And you know, I think it's that's 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 what I see. Okay. And how many white people with dreads do you know? Uh, I went to Evergreen State oh. College, <laughs> so I met a lot of white people. With dreads. <laughs> Fair. Okay. Yeah. And so so here's what I saw was that okay. So for example. I was in a chapter of a political organization trying to start a group, you know, a campus group. And obviously, okay, the whole campus politics thing, that's a whole, you know, rat's nest of complications. But like, when we were like a tiny group of people, there was, there's not a lot of people of color at Evergreen. And I would have like, I would regularly hear, you know, people talking about like, oh my God, all these white people with dreads, ugh. And it was like, yeah, most of the white people with dreads there were just like, you know, smoking weed all the time and, and whatever, like living their life. I don't really care. But it's like, oh, hey, this this white guy with dreads wants to join the, you know, join the the organization you're in. Oh, yeah, he's like also a mushroom dealer. And, you know, he just like <laughs> hangs out in the woods all day and, you know, does mushrooms. And it's kind of like, okay, so should we let this guy join knowing that it'll be really off-putting to potential, like, I know there's like certain people who are people of color and white people who will be turned off by us having, you know, a quarter of this group be white people with dreads, <laughs> right? And I, I want, like, the activists to get involved. Even if I don't, per- even if I personally disagree with their dislike of white people with dreads, it's like, okay, this guy has dreads and he's not, like, I'm just going to stereotype most white people with dreads, they're, they're not super political, engaged people. <laughs> I don't know. And of course there's... It's, I'm stereotyping, I'm making differences, but like, I felt like I, I was having to make the choice of saying, do I want to like, make this group appear 
and feel attractive to to activists, to people of color, or do I want to like welcome white people with dreads? It felt like I had to make the choice, and maybe I, I was probably overanalyzing it, but that's what it felt like. Like people who were political were pretty openly anti-white dreads. And I, like it wasn't all they were talking about all the time, but it was like, if you asked anyone about it, it was like, yeah, fuck that. And I would rather attract those people than attract like the people doing mushrooms in the woods. White people with dreads can be comrades too, Gabe. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, I know some. And I'm sure there are lots of them who are work like working class and potentially recruitable to a socialist project. Or that being said, anecdotally, I definitely know some of the the types that you're sort of referencing as well. Yeah, I I just, um, I, I think Gabe puts it really well, and he, his concrete example, I think, really elucidates my hesitation. It's not that I think, you know, like, pragmatic, it, it's more a pragmatic consideration, I think. It's it's what is going to, because, you know, we, we need to be able to reach, you know, all layers of the working class, right? And it's hard because white guy with dreads might very well be, you know, part of the socialist project, but also, you know, people of color who might be off put by that is also a, another broad category of the working class that we absolutely need to reach as well. And it's hard because, I mean, this is why building working class solidarity is difficult because, you know, there's also these cultural things we also we all have to overcome as well. Like, I think the argument that, like, I mean, we, we have to be culturally aware of how things are perceived, right? Um, and just because, like, historically, yes, obviously historically many different peoples have dreads. Uh, Rastafarianism has dreads, and that's not a racialized thing. Um, but these things do have racialized contexts, right? And they do have uh, cultural contexts, uh, specifically in the United States. Um, and I don't think we can just wave it off like, oh, you know, because I could, you know, I think it's a very... Um, uh, it's a very easy thing to do where it's like, oh, because I can explain where this comes from, then it's not offensive. Like, it's, well, no, it's not, it's not that open and shut. Now, it could be the case that, you know, the people who are offended by, dread, you know, white people with dreads are just particularly loud. And it turns out that, you know, the majority of people aren't put off by that. And I think that would be, uh, that, but, you know, in the absence of that evidence, you know, that, you know, numeric... Uh, you know, that quantitative analysis, uh, you know, I, I think I'm with Gabe on this one. I, I'm a, a little hesitant to, to, to critically support white people with dreads just on the basis of, like, we want to be as inclusive as possible. Like, I'm not saying we should just exclude, you know, white people with dreads entirely, but I think, you know, saying that we, we support this, I think, is, is a bridge too far. Yeah, and I think like if you're if you're a, a political organization and your meeting is is all white people, and you want to attract people of color, well, if like a quarter or half of those people are also white people with dreads, it's going to be even harder. You're going to be even less. It's going to it's going to be even harder to attract. But people where of outside color. of Olympia, Washington, might you ever encounter that? <laughs> like, hey, yeah. I'm just saying well, they cause... can they can come in crews sometimes. You get one of them in, they bring all their friends. Yeah, I mean, white, white people having dreads is a style that has come and gone, I think, a couple times. Um, currently, it's 
very unusual. Or right. In, in right. my circle, it's very unusual. I feel like in the 90s, it was much more of a thing. Totally. And so, yeah, I, I, I guess I don't think... In an ideal world, white people having dreads would not be a problem. I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with it. And I think that the sensitivities we need to have around it don't rise to the level of saying it's actually a problem for white people to have dreads. If if you have a political organization that is has a substantial portion of white people with dreads, you probably have other problems going on. You know, yeah. it's like I mean it's like your 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 example of the guy who like deals mushrooms and like spends all his time in the forest. Like that sounds like there's a lot of other reasons to maybe not recruit yeah. that person. Then maybe he's, you know, maybe his, it, it sounds like that's the sort of person for whom their, their reason for wanting to be involved in an organization would be primarily aesthetic. They just want to sit around and have sort of deep conversations about like dialectics or something. And they're not really interested in doing the work. And if they're interested in doing the work, they're going to probably stop dealing mushrooms and spending all their time in the woods. Mm -hmm. And if at some point they, through conversations with people, decide that having dreads is not the best look for them culturally or personally then that's fine but i don't see i think we should maintain that um there's there's not a real problem with it there is a perceived cultural problem with it that yeah, yeah. It, it it is only like the the people objecting to it, it it it's very much like oh there's no possibility for actual solidarity is there yeah if, if that's what you're objecting to yeah if that's your main thing of like there's no possible well, it's not like, the main thing, I don't think, for... I mean, I'm sure for some people it's the main thing, but for for, for, for very few people, is yeah. that's the main thing. It's like, oh, your hairstyle. Yeah. It has is, a very, like, we're not... I don't know. I com I, I, it, I, it's heavily associated in my mind with people who... This sort of basic sort of liberal intersectional thing of, like, our society works fine... Uh, our systems are basically fine. We just need to tweak it so that uh, some of the people who have been marginalized, like the system is fine. It just marginalizes some people and we need to include those people. It's, it's, it's very yeah. much within that framework. I guess I just, I, I just want a group that's, that feels very welcoming and open to young people of color. And I think like white people with dreads is for many, that, that can be a turnoff, you know? And I, I, I can respect that, why people would kind of be turned off by that. And I, and, and I would agree with that. I don't, and I don't think that precludes offering critical support to white people with dreads. I, uh, but, but, you know, I think the, uh, I think the fact that we say perceived as if that doesn't matter, um, we, we care very much about, or we should care very much about how the left is perceived, right? Like a big reason why the left has trouble building in, you know, with people of color is because we're just perceived as, I don't know, like, you know, the old Stalinists or people who just like didn't really care about the issues facing people of color. Like perception matters. Like it's a real thing that we have to wrestle with. Like we shouldn't just dismiss it. Like, oh, you know, like, we can politically overcome that. Well, yeah, you can only politically overcome that if they come to your stuff, right? Like, if, they, if they're interested in what you have to say, if you show respect, like, at a, at a pretty basic level, right? Like, you know, I don't think we can just dismiss out of hand. I, I think I fundamentally agree that, like, you know, there's nothing inherently wrong with, with it in, the, in some sort of, like, permanent identity essentialist way. But at the same time, like, you, you have to, you know, in order to get people to politically agree with you, you have to show them a level of respect at, at, some, at some level so that you can get into those political discussions and really wrestle with the ideas, right? And so I think I, this has been a good discussion just kind of on, like, how to deal with cultural appropriation and culture clash within building working class solidarity. But, like, you know, I'm still on the side that uh, I'm not... I, 
I'm not going to critically support it, even if, like, I wouldn't exclude someone from joining an organization just because they're a white person with dreads, you know? So I kind of agree with some of what you're saying, Preston, but the conclusion I don't agree with. And also, I don't agree that the the biggest problem with, uh, like, the socialist left building their their or you know respective organizations with regard to people of color joining has been that we're not showing respect or something or it's I don't think Preston said it was the biggest okay well I, I don't think that is in any way the major factor at all I think what's what has been the biggest obstacle is we haven't been fundamentally rooted in in workplaces um the way like for example the labor movement has been and the labor movement you know, I think African American women are—they're extremely disproportionately represented in in unions, and people, women of color generally, make up a huge portion of uh, the U.S. unionized labor force. And so, I think it's really a question of where the socialist left has been primarily rooted, and and the past—I don't know—twenty years or so, it's been in college campuses primarily and then you know the people left over who were communists before that so I think we're we're coming out of that period where I think the the socialist left is becoming more integrated and putting more focus on the point of production organizing workers and and so on as the labor movement sort of like re-emerges and is showing its force again and uh using its for power again but yeah I really I really don't think that I don't think that what you're pointing to the issue of like respect and how we're perceived and just like the actual critical mass that isn't there of people of color in socialist organizations that those are all factors. I just don't think it's I think it's minuscule compared to just where the socialist left has been organizing in the last while. It sounds like we should move to a vote because I think we've reached an impasse. Yeah, I was just going to say the same thing. I know where I stand. I know where Gabe stands. Preston and Tressa? Um, yeah. I will vote against critical support for white people with dreads. Not that, like, you know, I, I, I just think we, we it, it's too far for me. It's not that I have against anything against someone being, like, uneducated about it. And it's not like I think they're bad people. I just think it's not productive. Yeah, I will extend my criti- critical support to white people with dreads because I don't think it's a problem. And now that we've thoroughly offended probably everybody who's listening. (laughs) The first topic was all about why liberals suck. The second topic is all about why white people with dreads suck or people who hate white people with dreads suck. We've just, we've just, I love it. Every episode we can slowly cut off more and more of our listener base. You should see what my next couple topics are. Um, So this is another tie. Yeah, it is another tie. We will have to do a tiebreaker episode if that... If that sounds good to everybody. I think this is also the first time that Gabe and I have voted on the same side. Yeah. Yeah. This one fell along age, age lines. The division. That's true. That is interesting. The two youngest people voted one way and the two oldest people voted the other way. Yeah. It is, uh, yeah, because usually I feel like uh, Teresa and Gabe, you guys form like the, the sort of the, the, the ultra left fashion <laughs> versus, versus me, me, me and Preston, I think, tend toward a slightly more conservative approach, like within, within you know, broadly the same tendency. But yeah. I mean, critical support for dogs was ultra left. <laughs> 
I mean, I, my, 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 well, for one thing, we're not releasing that segment, so, <laughs> at, at any point at this yeah. point. Yeah. Okay. Teresa, do you have a topic? Critical support for the term and idea of neoliberalism. Well, not critical support for neoliberalism, right. but critical support for the term. I mean, sure, I for think the it's... the term as a descriptor. Mm-hmm. Right. Makes sense okay. to me. Yeah, so you're referring to the, the criticism of it as, like, a unnecessary replacement for just capitalism? Mm-hmm. The way it is used by some people, like, I don't know, kind of the, the Naomi Klein type of leftist who just sort of inserts neoliberalism instead of capitalism and as if there is something new or different about mm-hmm. this, uh, you know. I, yeah, and it's like, I, I think there's something to that criticism because some of the ways that neoliberalism is used acts as if everything that's wrong with our society was kind of invented since, like, 1945, as if New Deal social democracy is the pinnacle to which we are attempting to return. So, yeah, like, the, the term can be used in a bad way, but I, I still think that there's a lot of distinctive aspects of capitalism since... Uh, I'd say roughly the 1980s that mark that sort of mark it off and make neoliberal capitalism and neoliberalism a useful descriptor. Yeah, I feel like it's in the same way that like Lenin used the term like imperialism, right? Like it, it's meant to denote a period of capitalism. And I think we've gotten over this idea that everything is late capitalism as well, because that's also kind of that's just been very shown to be not true or it's just shown that it's 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 very confident to say that something is late capitalism it's to the point where it's a meme now which should really disabuse you of that notion but you know when in the 1917 they said it's late capitalism right imperialism is the highest form of capitalism it's like well no you, you kind of whoops you know you, you missed it and so but i think in terms of being a useful term to denote a particular period of time, you know, you could say sort of imperialism and then sort of, you know, the interwar period, interwar capitalism, and then sort of the New Deal capitalism, social democracy, golden age of capitalism. And then, you know, that obviously falls apart and turns into neoliberalism. I think that those are all useful terms. Uh, I think I do agree it can get overused because sometimes you're just describing like the process of accumulation is neoliberal. It's like, well, no, it's it. That's just what it is. Um, that's just capitalism. But I think it, it it does still have some use, although uh, it may have less use as we get further away from its inception. Right. As we might move, be moving towards something that's not neoliberalism. You know, we see the rise of nationalism and all these other uh, movements that are protectionist and actually kind of anti-neoliberal in some ways. It might actually be more useful. Well, I said it, just said it might be less useful, but it actually might be more useful to contrast it with the current period. I don't know. It, it has use, but I agree it's overused. Yeah, Gabe, what do you think? Um, I think people use it incorrectly or excessively, but I think as a term, I think it's I think it's good and you know a useful term and. I would continue using it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't entirely agree with, or I, I think that the analysis that Preston is referring to with capitalism itself is moving away with neoliberalism. Neoliberalism is actually kind of propagandistic and overblown in that they want to be seen to be moving away from neoliberalism. But the, the sort of nationalist, protectionist elements of sort of far-right governments uh, are largely completely overblown and exist in a purely... Like they want, you know, people, you know, governments like uh, Trump or Modi or 
Boris Johnson want to be seen as something other than neoliberal, but if you actually look at their policies and the effects of those policies, they are not. Mm -hmm. They are not implementing a traditional, like, far-right nationalist uh, economic policy. They're just, that's not what's going on. So the idea that, you know, as some of the... Uh, the Jacobin crowd will say, like, it is not capitalism that is in crisis, it is the neoliberal form of it, as if there is another form that is rising right now, and there really isn't. So I, I, I think that's that's a fundamentally mistaken analysis. Well, so, yeah. rising, I, I think there's... There's not a serious movement for in, for any other kind of capitalism. Yeah, I mean, it, it, like... it. I mean, I think, like, when Trump came into power, he actually, I mean, he, when he brought, like, Steve Bannon and a lot of these people with him, I mean, he has since basically kicked all of them out exactly. of his administration. Yeah, exactly. but, but I would still call that a rise, and you, we might look back and say, okay, that was a temporary hiccup. It was a blip, look, basically. But also, simultaneously, he's, compl- he, he's bringing in people like Betsy DeVos and people that, uh, like, his administration is a project of massive privatization, and that is one of the defining characteristics of neolib- neoliberalism. So yeah, I would I would agree with Jacob on this one. Anyhow, so yeah, critical support for the term neoliberalism as a descriptor. Yeah, I'm with it. Okay, sounds good. Uh, so critical support for neoliberalism. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, we just you hear that, everyone? Yeah. <laughs> oh man. Adjust your everything about your life accordingly <laughs> at that point. Um, anyhow. Critical support for the onion. Yes. yes. Yep. Yeah. No, the onion's great. The onion is one of the better media outlets uh, in the United States. In terms, I, I was, uh, I mean, I always knew it was good. I always thought it was funny. I was pleasantly surprised when they turned out to have really good politics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's all it's uh, all their stuff tends to be great. Uh, all the stuff about Bernie tends to be you know either laughing that he's old or or like actively shitting on everybody else, which is great. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, I just remember the one where it's like uh, uh, DNC accuses Bernie Sanders of actively trying to win election. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's <right>. like, <laughs> okay. Pretty much. I so. love. Yeah, I, I, I think you can actually learn more about society. In American society, from the Onion, than from most uh, actual news outlets. Yeah, like yeah. you you get a, a greater understanding of the way society works and what the power structure is from the Onion than you do from like CNN or you know, the fucking Seattle Times or something. Yeah, yeah. I would say critical just because uh, I kind of stopped reading. I, I I stopped frequenting their website after they got bought by someone and they got a lot more ads. Mm-hmm. And it got kind of annoyed. Like, the website just wasn't constructed that well. Yeah. You got one of those ones where just a million pop-ups. I have no idea if it's still like that. I just but. follow them on Instagram, and that's pretty... Yeah. I, just I pretty much headlines. just see their posts on other social media, and it's pretty great. But, yeah. So, critical support for The Onion? Yes. Indeed. We appear to be in agreement. Adjust your... Media consumption. Media... Well, okay. I don't know. I can't think of a way to... Adjust your vegetables accordingly. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, Gabe, okay, do you have another topic for us? Uh, podcasts. <laughs> yes, critical support for podcasts. Critical support for podcasts? I don't know. There's a lot of one. trash ones out there. <laughs> yeah, this one, right. Well, yeah, but 
Like with any media, right? Yep. Like something's uh, gonna be bad. Ours is gonna be good. <laughs> yeah. Dunk on go. the haters. Um. What, wait. What was your potential downside of podcasts? Um. Oh, this shitty podcast. I feel like this is just a protest of the fact that we're still recording. <laughs> okay, maybe a little bit. <laughs> but critical support for podcasts. Great. Okay. Uh, how about critical support for Costco pizza? I'm a big fan of Costco pizza. Yes. You can feed a ton of people with it. It's cheap. It's pretty affordable. It's so much better than any other chain. Their employer, like, uh, their employees tend to be pretty, are generally well paid, which is also a nice, like, at least I'm not. Is that really? Yeah, yeah Costco not, pays pretty huh. good wages. So, huh. and, cool. and has benefits. So it's like, They're again, definitely, of, of the whole grocery industry, they're probably the best, I mean, of any big chain. I mean, no. Winco. 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 Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, Winco. Costco's main problem is the membership yeah. aspect, which makes yeah. it kind of. And they're 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 far away usually from where urban areas. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's one right. in the middle of Soto, but yeah, yeah. Well, but, but you have to drive to get there. I yeah. cannot logistically oh, shop at that. Soto. Depends on where you. I cannot logistically shop there. I mean, yeah. I live. I would need a car, which I don't own. I would need uh, a well, way to bring the, the groceries. Problem is the home. volume that you would want to buy exactly. yeah, is more of the problem. Like yeah. it's that like that Costco is very accessible by public transit, right? But then urine. Yeah. So like you're gonna what are you gonna take like a pallet of juice to you know, <laughs> on, on the bus? Yeah, like, yeah. yeah. I've brought an office chair on a bus once, but never again. <laughs> I carried um, four extra large pizzas on the bus last week, and it was not pleasant. Speaking oh. do you still have those? It most of it's frozen. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, I know what we're having for lunch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, no, I'm I'm totally down with Costco pizza. I think it's impressive. Like if you see the behind the scenes of how they make it, it's super cool. They have like a machine to put sauce on it. Really? Yeah. Wow. It wow. like spins it like a spins it right round, right round <laughs> like a record baby, like literally like a like an LP, and it just spins around. And all the sauce goes on there. That's clever. Um, oh. but it it's also not degrading to the yeah. workers there. So yeah, no, fuck yeah, yeah. Costco pizza. They should be unionized. Oh, well, it should be a workers' co-op. Well, well <laughs> is Costco not unionized? I don't know. I don't think so, actually. Yeah, probably not. I, I would doubt it. I feel like, yeah, because with the amount that we actually do hear about UFCW, if they were unionized, they'd be at UFCW, and we would know about it. So, yeah. But anyhow, yeah, uh, Costco pizza is the fuel of the proletarian revolution. <laughs> um, that's my position. But Yeah, all right. Critical support. Great. Try some? Oh, I'm, was I supposed to be thinking of something? If you want to. If you have a quick hitter. Mm, no, I don't. Yeah. Okay. Very well. Do we have any others? Critical support for settlers of Catan. <laughs> um, what's, so what's the case the case the, ca- the ca- Well, the case for is it's a fun game, and right. it builds social, well, quote, builds social connections in a very contentious way. The problematic part is it's settler colonialism. So there aren't right. natives you're driving out, which is fine, but... It's way more of a cooperative game than a lot of games like that, though. Like, if you compare that to, like, Risk, it's much more like you're, you're I mean, you're, you're developing the forces of production in a, in a kind of competitive framework, but not really. Like, you're not in conflict with the other players. Like, at the, at the, at the end you of the game... You're not literally fighting with yeah, them. And, at the end right. of the game, you have four uh, sort of nation-states on an island that are not at war with each other and have never been at war with each other. And the pers- and the largest one wins the game. 
But they do sometimes try to box each other out. They are competing for resources. Right. They, it's, and there are notions of soldiers, um, and you can direct soldiers to take resources from other people. Mm, it would be a lot cooler, um, and I still have a long-term goal of seeing this to fruition. It'd be a lot cooler if it was like, um, like building socialism or something like that. Socialists like, of Catan? <laughs> Socialists, comrades of Catan. Comrades of Catan. <laughs> it's definitely I, I, comrades of Catan. Like, it, it has occurred oh to God. me that it would be really cool um, to make that, make some, like, a communist, like, board game type of thing, or game, it doesn't have to be a board game, but, like, some kind of game that could kind of, like, teach people about socialism or revolution or something like that. And I think that that is a long-term project. You have to be careful now. That, that I, I think we should do. You should mm. not let it be reformist. That's probably the biggest issue uh, is, is, is a might go in a, like, you gain all the points and... Bam, then there's socialism. It's like, well, that's not really how it's going to work. Well, we can work out the details at another <laughs> yeah. time. Yeah. Yeah. At the end of the game, you flip the board, and that's socialism. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Involves okay. like exercise and running around the room and <laughs> flipping over the board and picking up pieces and shit. Wow. Yeah. Smashing the know. state of the well, board. Anyway, I, back I, to settlers. I, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I like settlers of Catan. I just like to in my in my mind, there's no one who lives on the island, so it's not like you're not displacing or hurting people. The robber lives on the island. Uh, no, the robber just gets there at the same time everyone else does. I guess yeah. that's true. So it's analogous to like the settlement of Iceland. Oh, okay. Basically, where like there, there wasn't, right? There, there. Everyone was there. The the, the indigenous population arrived in like the eleven hundreds or whenever. I you see. could say the robbers like, uh, just like some some guy, you know, privateer, some some band of like uh, <laughs> privateer is a good description. Some some band of thieves who just like came to the island at the same time and work for whoever hires them to go rob from the other people. And it's, yeah, it's not explicitly class-based, but then again, most things, most games aren't. Well, we don't no. know. We don't know what no, type of there's, society there's really nothing in the game that gives an indication of a class society or not. Like, it, right. it, it doesn't, there's no... There's no kings, you, there's no it's, government, really. It's feudal, it's like medieval feudal times themed. themed, so you would think it would be like a feudal aristor, like aristocratic thing, but there's, that doesn't appear at all. Right. There's soldiers with a particular method of dress, which maybe suggests it, but that could have just right. been left over There's from knights, where they came but from. You could just call them community militias, and that that doesn't <laughs> that, that wouldn't change the structure of the game. It's true. The game is not based around that conflict. Yeah. Right. Sure. All right. I'll throw in. It's critical support for critical support of for settlers of Catan. Yeah. Sure. But uh, well, but with the perspective that we should develop comrades of Catan. Yes. yes. Comrades of Catan. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with that perspective. <laughs> I don't know how we're gonna do it, but we're gonna figure it out. No, I think we should um, we should all drop out of serious political organizing. We should stop canvassing. We should stop doing everything, and we need to develop comrades of Catan. That's our like main way to engage with the radicalization that is occurring in society right now. If we can make this board game, we can release it. Like if we start working now, we can release it around the time of the general election. And it'll change the way millions of Americans think about politics. That is not the correct perspective. <laughs> and on that note. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Adjust your views accordingly. Mm -hmm. Wash your damn hands. <laughs> <laughs> don't touch anyone. Don't lick anything on the bus. You know. <laughs> yes. it's like, don't Zamboni anything. If you spill it, just, just leave it. Leave it be. For all the bus creepers out there, 
Okay, this is this is even worse for you. You're you 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 have even less excuse to be a bus creep. Yeah. Okay, because you're supposed to stay away from people. So go fuck yourself. Yeah. It's like <laughs> even what? more so than you already should. <laughs> it's like with the um, masturbate uh, copiously. Yeah, at home. At home, <laughs> Not socially, on the bus. socially distanced. Yes. Only socially distanced <laughs> masturbation is allowed. Yeah. Um, it's like what that. Um, uh, some sort of public health official in New York said during Ebola a couple of years ago where he was like, um, you know, this is really only transferred by, you know, fluid to fluid contact. So um, if you see some like blood or mucus on the on the ground or on the subway, don't eat it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you should be fine. Yeah, there you go. Okay. So bus creeps stay home. And resist your urge to eat blood or mucus off the sidewalk. Yes. <laughs> Anyhow. Your friends at Critical Support, <laughs> signing off. <laughs> yeah. Okay, bye. Still